0: New York and Minnesota are suing the Trump administration over its $1 billion cut to the funding for state health care programs that serve almost 1 million low-income Americans. The Health and Human Services Department waited until a day before Affordable Care Act payments were due to notify New York and Minnesota by email that more than $1 billion in annual funding was going to be cut off. That's according to the complaint. Joining me is Timothy Jost, a professor at Washington and Lee School of Law. Tim, New York York and Minnesota were the only two states that chose to offer these basic health programs. Explain what they are.
1: Yeah, I think most people are familiar with the way uh, ways in which most people receive help under the Affordable Care Act, which is either through Medicaid or through the exchanges or marketplaces where people get premium tax credits and, and cost sharing reductions to uh, uh, reduce the cost of health coverage, and health care if they're financially eligible. But the Affordable Care Act had another possibility, which was the basic health program, and uh, what The way the basic health program works is that states that want to uh, take advantage of this option can uh, receive funding from the federal government to provide health care coverage to people whose incomes are above the Medicaid expansion level, above 133% of the federal poverty level, but not exceeding 200% of the federal poverty level. And Minnesota and New York are the only states that have that have opted to do that, but in New York, more than 700,000 people are participating in Minnesota. It's about 90,000, and for those people, they're receiving health care coverage a lot Uh, cheaper and uh, with more options than uh, would probably have been available under the the marketplaces or exchanges. So it's a program that has been a tremendous benefit. But as you said, it's now being threatened by the Trump administration.
0: So in this lawsuit, what are New York and Minnesota claiming? Well, the
1: Uh, The the states had the option of offering this basic health program, uh, and if they did so, the federal government was supposed to give them 95% of the money that the federal government would have spent had the people who become eligible for the basic health program just gone out and enrolled in, in private health plans through the exchanges. Um, but it was ninety five percent of the amount that the federal government would have paid in premium tax credits and cost-sharing reduction payments. And uh, as, as people may be aware, um, the, uh, the Trump administration stopped paying insurers the cost-sharing reduction payments in October uh, because it argued that the Congress had never appropriated the money for them. And, and then it said uh, that it was going to cut off reimbursing the states, New York and Minnesota, for the cost-sharing reduction uh, portion of the money that they're entitled to for funding the basic health program. The problem is that the statute, uh, the way the statute is written Uh, The states are entitled to uh, funding from the federal government not uh, at the amount that insurers would have been reimbursed for reducing cost sharing, which is uh, that that's the reimbursement that the Trump administration cut off, but rather uh, based on the level of help that uh, consumers would have gotten from the cost-sharing reduction payments and those, uh, that help is still uh, required by law. The f- insurers are still required to reduce cost-sharing, even though they're no longer being reimbursed for it. So New York and Minnesota are arguing properly, I believe, that under the law, they are still owed that money for the basic health program, even though the Trump administration has stopped reimbursing insurers. That's awfully complicated. <laughs> but, uh, the.
0: It is, Tim, What? What? we don't know what the Trump response will be, the Trump administration response, because they obviously haven't had time to file their papers yet. But what are some possible responses to the lawsuit?
1: Well, I mean, I suppose the possible response is, the, is that uh, Congress never appropriated money for the cost-sharing reduction payments, and therefore they can't pay the state, just like they can't pay the private insurers. Um, But, uh, again, that uh, ignores the fact that the statutes are different under which insurers were being reimbursed and under which the state is being paid uh, for its expenses under the Basic Health Plan, Uh, which is to say it's pretty hard for me to imagine a response and in fact, the federal government has been pretty unresponsive to uh, New York and Minnesota as they've tried to figure out what, what the, the federal government's argument is
0: here. Tim, looking at, I mean, we only have about a minute here, but looking at the Affordable Care Act and um, the Trump administration has uh, undermined various parts of it in, in various ways, what will be left of it, in your opinion, in about a year
1: Well, I mean, right now, some parts of it are doing quite well. There are more states that are thinking of expanding Medicaid, uh, and enrollment was pretty much uh, for next year what it was for this year. But I do think that it increasingly is becoming a program that uh, is mainly of help to low-income people, and uh, the Trump administration, I think, needs to step up to the plate to... Uh, help uh, make sure that the program is uh, of, of, of help to higher income people as well who are now being priced out of the market. And there's some proposals before Congress to do that, and hopefully that's the direction we'll go.
0: Thank you for being here, Tim. That's Timothy Jost. He's a professor at Washington and Lee School of Law. If it seems like you've been hearing a lot about gerrymandering lately, you are right. There are a barrage of court cases challenging congressional maps in Maryland, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Texas, and Wisconsin. Perhaps more important, the Supreme Court, which has been unwilling to tackle partisan gerrymandering, is taking up two cases challenging maps in Wisconsin and Maryland. That could set a national precedent. Would it send other maps? tumbling down. My guest is Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Store. Greg, the court's in recess, so you have some extra time to study this issue. That's <laughs> Chief, right, June. Chief Justice John Roberts does not like courts being the referee in gerrymandering cases. He's called the arguments in those cases sociological gobbledygook. <laughs> Why Yet, has the court taken two cases this term?
2: Well, because maybe some other members of the court don't see it that way. Yeah, the key, Justice as is so often the case in these issues, is Justice Kennedy. The question we're all waiting to find out the answer to is whether he thinks there are, are manageable standards so that courts can go in and say, this map is too, too partisan, but this map isn't. Uh, the Chief Justice... Uh, could join that opinion if, if if Kennedy joins the court's liberals to say uh, that there is a way to, to draw that line. But it's also very possible the chief justice will end up in dissent.
0: The court has heard arguments about the Wisconsin map, which seems to be drawing the most attention. Tell us about those arguments.
2: Yeah, so that that is a, an argument that happened in October. That involves the uh, state legislative map in Wisconsin. Wisconsin Republicans drew it when they, for the first time in decades, took over uh, the both houses of the state legislature, and they had the governor's mansion as well in Wisconsin, and they basically drew it in a way that made it really, really hard for Democrats to, to take over the state legislature, even if they won a, a a super large majority, uh, the court. Some of us thought. I thought the court might rule in that case by now. It was in October that they ruled, but in, uh, that they heard arguments. But instead, they uh, decided they were going to also hear an additional case, a case out of Maryland that might give them a narrower way to get at the issue. So for the time being, nothing coming out of the court. We're waiting to hear those arguments in the Maryland case uh, in a couple of months.
0: No. The Maryland case involved a challenge to a single congressional district drawn by Democrats aiming to oust a Republican incumbent. A lot of election experts were surprised the court took that case, but can you see reasons why the court might have taken that case?
2: Yeah, I mean, it is a bit of a head-scratcher, but there are at least a couple possible reasons, and I'm you know, certainly speculating here. One is that um, the court, when it uh, has dealt with racial gerrymandering cases, has insisted that those challenges be brought district by district. In, in the Wisconsin case, Democrats tried to challenge – are trying to challenge the entire map. Uh, one possibility is the court will uh, decide in the Maryland case uh, that this is the way you have to do it is, is by challenging a single district. The other possibility is a little more political and less, less legal, which is that – if this is going to be a term where we have a big win for opponents of partisan gerrymandering, the court could use the two cases to side with Republicans in one case and Democrats in the other case. And that might address uh, sort of the concern that Chief Justice Roberts raised, which is that the court's going to look like it's it's uh, being partisan, however it decides these case, cases. And maybe uh, by giving each side one, the appearance won't be uh, quite so stark.
0: So, Greg, After these two cases, after the decisions come down, is it likely that the Supreme Court will have established a nationwide precedent that would make some other maps— you know, put some other maps in jeopardy?
2: Yes. Certainly if the court says uh, for the first time that this map in in Wisconsin is so partisan it violates the Constitution, that would set up a new standard that would uh, allow challenges to maps, uh, a, a number of other maps around the country. And, and probably even if the court uh, decides it on the narrower ground that you can challenge this particular district as being uh, too partisan. Uh, It's also possible, of course, that that the court will say, yeah, you know, this really isn't an area we should get into. We're not going to allow these sorts of challenges. And then, then of course, we're not going to have the sorts of new lawsuits that we might see otherwise.
0: Now – Would this happen in time to make changes for the 2018 elections?
2: So probably in most cases, no. Um, The one fight where that might be different is there is an existing fight in Pennsylvania. A couple weeks ago, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court struck down a Republican-drawn map there as being too partisan. But that court based its ruling on the state constitution. That ruling could go into effect and apply for the 2018 election. Uh, The other cases that are out there – the way the timeline is working out, including one in North Carolina where a lower court has said that that Republican drawn map was too uh, was too partisan, those cases now seem to be on a timeline where it's more likely that they won't kick in if there is a ruling against gerrymandering until the 2020 election.
0: Let's turn to DACA for a moment. The Justice Department lawyers took. The really unusual step of asking the Supreme Court to directly review a California federal judge's order to Homeland Security to resume processing DACA renewal applications. Tell us how unusual that is and where that stands.
2: So it, it's uh, extremely unusual. The Supreme Court has agreed to expedite its consideration of that uh, of that uh, petition and will probably say sometime in the middle to the end of February whether it's going to hear the case on an ultra-fast track and bypass the appeals court. The Supreme Court almost never does that. So if you look at the cases where the court has done that uh, in a standalone case that is not, not when it's already considering an issue, uh, they're usually pretty extraordinary cases like, say, the Nixon tapes case or the President Truman's seizure of the steel mills back, uh, back in the 1950s. So uh, the Justice Department has to make the case of the Supreme Court that this is so important and so urgent that, that we get a decision now that you shouldn't even wait for an appeals court to, to consider the issue.
0: So, Greg... Is it that um, the Supreme Court has said that it will take the case, but it's just a question of whether it will be fast-tracked, or is it a question of whether it's going to take the case at all?
2: No, I'm glad you asked that. So, no, the the court has not said it will take the case. The only thing the court has done is it has said, we will consider the request to take the case on an expedited basis so that it is at least possible we could agree to hear it this term, but the court uh, has not uh, in any way agreed to actually hear the arguments uh, either this term or going forward.
0: And do, do does any of that affect? The, the timelines or the, the dates for DACA filings, that's just going forward.
2: Yeah, but so probably not. The key, the key thing is so a federal judge, has, as you said, ordered the administration to start accepting applications again. The Justice Department, even though it went to the Supreme Court, didn't seek a stay of that ruling. That means that it is now having to comply with that ruling. People are filing new applications to renew their DACA status, uh, even if their DACA status doesn't expire until, you know, June or July.
0: Another unusual move, not asking for an injunction. Thanks so much for being here, Greg. Always a pleasure. That's Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter, Greg Store. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcast I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.